save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning, and welcome to Our Wild World. A couple weeks ago, we spoke with Ashwell and uh, talking about facing day zero as South Africa and Cape Town was heading into a water crisis. So we understand the rains have come, and uh, Ashwell's going to tell us a little bit more about that and what's going on now. But what we're going to talk today is about when we think about problems, wicked problems, which we're all facing, we have been here before. And actually, we never really stopped being here. But here's a perspective that Ashwell's going to help us with of that we all should consider when we are talking about long-standing wicked problems. So, Ashwell, there's a lot that is going on behind the scenes. There's the politics, there's the sociopolitics, there's the dynamics, and then there's kind of the hoodwinking to make us all feel comfortable again. Fantastic. I think, as usual, the best thing we can do for our listeners is kind of clear the deck uh, to help inform them as active citizens. So uh, in South African terms, the the day zero in, a, in the official political kind of discussions and how uh, our politicians, let's call them our representatives, um, have communicated. Day zero has been pushed to June uh, with very little rationality or explanation or logic behind it. And sometimes, yes, that is kind of the thing that will work for the masses. There are people out there that are desperate for answers. And because our politicians are elected officials um, and have our backing in a certain sense, we view them and what they say with a certain kind of credibility. Uh, as we've all learned, uh, a lot of politicians don't base their uh, opinions in evidence or an evidence-based perspective. So there's a lot of pushback. And obviously in South Africa, um, we're a dry country and there is quite a lot of um, sort of, well, okay, you've said we will have water to June now versus April. Um, the fundamental thing is, in Cape Town, still above the 500 um, megalitre production limit per day, and we're supposed to be getting below 450. And yes, we've, there's been a little bit of rain, but it's not enough to top up the dams. And those dams are sitting at 24 point, I think, 9%, I stand to be corrected. So there's still been a, a negative trend. What has been said, well, ha, national government are, uh, has stepped into state government and are starting to put resources in, and therefore um, June is now the new day zero. We don't know, realistically. No plans have been published, but we are operating on the good word of our elected officials saying that's the deal. 
But what uh, happened the, to common sense? So a week ago, they were standing in line for water rationing. And now today they're being told, oh, don't worry, we'll get along fine until June. And then what happens? That's a magic question. The cues are still there because luckily, and I think fortunately, uh, and perhaps it's a sign of the times globally, there is a level of cynicism amongst our citizens. And as we discussed, the credibility of political capital is not what it once was. And social media, the work that you do and other organizations do by uh, educating people outside the mainstream is gaining traction. So I think active citizenship is starting to point out, yeah, we hear the message. We're not fully convinced of that message. And you're not providing us details. And, you know, human beings, uh, as we discussed before, are beings of comfort. And the only way you really get comforted is when you know a plan has been made and that plan translates into daily reality, as we kind of highlighted last time around. People going, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Thanks, we've got a a new president and all of this stuff, but uh, is that going to make a difference to us and our ability to drink water and the, the fundamentals of life? And I mean, that's... If we think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the most fundamental thing, the daily survival things. Right. So a lot of shakeup happened in South Africa. Zuma is gone. And um, so is so is this the new political message of your new leader is um, saying things are going to be fine? So look, tell us a little bit about what happened and with Zuma and what's going on. Um, at this sort of uh, transient period. Um, Sir Ramaphosa was uh, duly nominated and then installed as the new president of the Republic of South Africa. Interesting to see um, how the opposition and minority parties, and we have uh, a, a broader range of opposition parties. It's not bipartisan or um, a two-party system. We have more. And it was very interesting to see how the pushback. Everybody's happy. Zoom is gone. Um, And, of course, in the background, our version of the FBI have been rapidly arresting his associates, his uh, one son, Dudazani Zuma, is now officially a fugitive and on the run. So there's quite a lot happening between our intelligence services and law enforcement services are closing in um, on Zuma's um, progeny and associates. So everybody's been distracted by that. Now, I think... Uh, over the last years, people know I tend to focus on the environmental stuff, and I'm like, oh, that's all great. Let the cops chase the criminals. Fantastic. But answers around the the basics of livelihoods and water and dealing with those things have not been answered. The national government um, actually declared, believe it or not, the water crisis in the Western Cape was only considered a local or provincial issue. The national government approached our parliament 
your version of Congress and and Senate to say it's now a national crisis and have gazetted that. In other words, now they will release the resources. Now we can see the change in political administrations. New president was coming in and he was saying to the administration, even before Zuma resigned, you better sort out what's happening down there. And the only way you can do that, like Senate and Congress does, is vote the budget in. Uh, like happened after Hurricane Katrina in America, it took an extreme amount of pressure for FEMA to obtain additional funds. And we are going through the same process that our uh, parliament, who has two houses of voting power, is in the process of trying to sort all of that out. So positive news. Um, but you know me, I like kind of go, yes, please put some technocrats in there who actually understand how water works and not just politicians, so we can get the right kind of advice. Um, so it's been a very dynamic period. It's been quite seminal for what's happening uh, with drought-stricken provinces in South Africa and how to try and sort out uh, emergency water supply. Really, you still uh, are facing day zero, but now trying to create some sort of a disaster avoidance management plan exactly so it it uh, i think there's been a realization and you know it always works when people do the the tally the numbers economically and unemployment and all of those things it's like when detroit in america goes down in terms of unemployment and automotive manufacturing gets hit it will be felt in New York, it will be felt in D.C. and Atlanta and elsewhere. And we are kind of realizing that now, or at least our political leadership are going, oh, we can't afford uh, the Western Cape not to produce. Western Cape's primary um, contribution to the economy is in agriculture and tourism. So they, they, uh, if tourists can't bath for example, or drink water, and if uh, grapes and deciduous fruits cannot be grown, um, it's a significant hit on the national economy. And I, th I think that is finally sunk home to say, wow. And it's um, of the three most productive provinces or in the American version states, there's been a bit of a realization saying, we can't afford this as a country. We lose the tax, we lose this, 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 and this. And of course, there is what we were talking about last time, the issue of environmental security. And suddenly you have social problems where communities will rise up and say, where's the water? We are dying here and violence and conflict starts to erupt, which has further effects, obviously. Well, it all starts to unravel. And then it's the solutions that you're, you're talking about that, that are being addressed are still very human-centric. So when we talk about environmental security and we only look at one side of the coin, which is the human comfort, um, where does the environmental comfort, you know, what happens when wildlife 
can't drink water and starts coming in to where the water is, that raises that conflict, right? Absolutely. And um, one thing we know in South Africa, uh, particularly down in the Cape, um, a lot of the agriculture there is dependent on biodiversity. So um, this is going to sound quite funny. Um, South Africa is famous as beer and wine drinkers and everything in between. Um, But what we do know in the uh, wheat growing belt of the Western Cape, which is where most of our wheat is grown, in other words, that's where we get our bread from, our beer from, and other products that relate to food security, we need bats to eat up all the insects that actually predate upon or eat wheat. And most of that happens at night. And there's suddenly been a recognition, wow, we've got no bat colonies left. The biodiversity side of it, now it's more chemicals, it's more toxins, it's more sprays and all of that kind of stuff. That whole thing has actually become quite an issue for the Western Cape is having enough biodiversity to service food security. And that philosophy, uh, just like in the States, I think in uh, the southern, uh, close to Mexico, there's some amazing bat um, migrations that take place. And they clear out hundreds, if not millions of tons of insects every year that would impact uh, man-made crop production. It's mind-boggling, confusing, because if the government and the political side with the new president is saying, okay, we're pushing day zero to a few months down the line, um, but meanwhile, we're going to try and address this water crisis that we're saying is not really a crisis anymore, so go back about your daily lives. Meanwhile, the, the civil population is saying, hmm, I'm not sure I believe this. And then the marginal communities are saying, we're already at a discomfort level. And then the more rural communities that are facing the right on the line with wildlife conflict and seeing, you know, the the growers, the the grape growers, the wheat growers, um, the hops growers are seeing that the bat colonies are disappearing. How, How does the civil population bring together these extreme viewpoints? Luckily, they have already. So there has been some good critique and influence on the politicians. So in terms of our new president, I think he, in his defense, and I think he he has got quite a lot of work to do other than the obvious, which is uh, corruption and all of that in South Africa. I think he's got a fair bit of work to do to convince the citizens that their day-to-day livelihoods are important to the state. Um, So I sense he's going to work on that, but it's not going to be quick, as usual, with all of these politically driven processes. Um, The other end of it is the national government certainly can intervene, and they pushed. And, of course, we know that 
uh, in South Africa, the Western Cape is run by a different party than the national government. So there's always tensions between the province and the national government because of the politics involved. But I suspect this time around, positively, that he's going to leap in. And one of the reasons why I say that is he himself owns his own game reserve, uh, our new president. And he loves, from what we can see, wildlife. So um, he's into wildlife and breeding wildlife. He's a fly fisherman um, and has his own properties and those kind of things in game reserves. So for many of us, we can, we're hoping that that interest and passion, regardless of the fact that he now runs the office of the president and is the state president, will have an influence on how he manages our biodiversity. We can only hope and see. Wow. It's, it sounds like you're at a very sticky wicket. And an, an interesting point to be sitting on at this at this juncture. So right now we have to take a break, but listeners, stick with us because we've got a lot more to talk about what's bringing this all together. So we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-346-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest, Ashwell Glasson. And um, we're talking about the recent changes and goings-on and crises in South Africa. So a lot is happening all at the same time right now. So Ramaphosa, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, he's a popular man, right? Absolutely. uh, He... He's always been popular. Um, he qualified uh, 1982 as a, an attorney, lawyer, um, from his youth as a student's right through to um, his role. And many people in South Africa forget he was one of the lead negotiators with um, many of the apartheid ministers, and one in particular. And I had the absolute pleasure of seeing both of them together looking over one of the most contested political hotspots in apartheid South Africa at the time, um, Alexander Township, not far from Santon in Johannesburg, just off Louisbourg Road. And I saw two of them, admittedly from a distance, I was a 19-year-old at the time, and both of them looking, um, I suppose, into the undiscovered country. We were there to protect them, and they were there looking at the problems of the day. And I suppose, in a way, South Africa's transition into democracy was a, a wicked problem, a completely complex, difficult animal and yet, because of people like Soro Ramaphosa and Rolf Mayer, the, the Minister of Defense at the time, and some others, um, they managed to craft together the 1994 democratic elections and later the 1996 Constitution of South Africa. And uh, I'm lucky to be uh, a witness to that kind of history. And why I'm, regardless of the issues right now, quite positive that the president is the right man uh, for the moment, regardless of party politics, um, to address certain things. Wow. So we keep sort of dancing around this term, wicked problems. And during our conversations, uh, you've mentioned that this goes back 
a long, long way. That committee discussions at these top levels have actually coined this term wicked problems when you were quite young. So once again, it, it shows our human capacity to keep um, pushing day zero farther and farther out so that we can manage to get through the day, survival for the day. But let's, let's define for our listeners what these wicked problems are and what the new president is going to have to be dealing with amongst all these complex, diverse issues today. Well, I think the key thing is to understand a wicked problem is not something that is um, logically or sequentially um, uh, solved. So one of the examples I like to use with the wicked problems is when you play chess, um, there's a set of rules. Uh, two chess players, depending on their level of ability and insight, can anticipate each other's moves and within those boundaries of the rules can solve the problem of who wins. In other words, who checkmates. Uh, a wicked problem is not that. Um, it doesn't have a necessarily a stopping rule. The logic of the problem is not necessarily sequential, so it doesn't fit into uh, what many of us who are social scientists would say, listen, this is not evidence-based, it's not fact-based, it's a complex systems problem, and you have to look at all the different elements. And it's not about right or wrong, but it's about impact. Uh, good or bad, or however you want to define that. So you have to kind of say, well, wow, this problem has got quite um, uh, severe impacts, and it doesn't necessarily have one, it's a root cause, one thing that drives it. Well, um, like so many problems today, it's not linear, it's multi-layered, and it's broad in scope in terms of the tremendous variety of ripple effects and impacts where you might not logically think of them. It's sort of similar to, you know, trophic cascades, that the environmental term of when you remove something or add something to the system, all the thing it starts to impact. And we humans have been very good at um, manipulating the system without thinking of all the impacts until 20, 30, 40 years down the line and we see what has happened and then we go about trying to fix it. So this wicked prob- these wicked problems that we're talking about today are long-standing and um, are finally coming to their own day zero as it all has kind of stacked up in ripple effect and now it needs to be addressed. Absolutely. And I, I think the difficult thing for many, because getting back to our conversation from our previous discussion, the temptation for human comfort is to look for a singular solution. Often wicked problems need multiple solutions, and some of those solutions will not hold forever. Um, 
And that kind of means like, okay, with things like climate change, solutions at uh, at local level may not um, be relevant in other areas or other regions or other countries or other places. So that's the other thing is a wicked problem um, is often ongoing and remains a thing that um, is unique and sometimes it's actually if you delve deep enough um, and I'll use a hectic example now because I think it's relevant so when we look at the escalation in the illegal trade of wildlife um, if we look at it as a wicked problem one of the drivers would probably be the growing GDP of the Republic, People's Republic of China and the growth of the middle class with social cultural aspirations that are upper class. And in their history, uh, that would include the use of rhino horn, ivory and other um, wildlife parts um, that would express their social cultural social cultural, excuse me, uh, superiority in a class sense. So when you look at that, you go, that's a wicked problem. We are not only dealing with the livelihood issues of poverty-stricken Africans that are trying to increase their um, earning income potential, but we're also dealing with a growing middle class that has aspirations from another class and those aspirations, the evidence of those aspirations are things like rhino horn gifts, uh, etc. And that would be a classic case of a multi-layered wicked problem with different components and drivers. Um, uh, well, the other underlying yeah. problem here in terms of a wicked problem is this whole concept of growth. And, you know, that by 2020, 2050, we're going to have X population. And we're going to have a conversation with um, my colleague Aaron Vandiver talking about that we have really already overshot globally um, the capacity for growth. So when a political agenda tries to comfort civilians who they're representing, in terms of a model of growth and everything's going to be fine down the line. And what we're talking about here is not a one-size-fits-all solutions. It requires many solutions. The wicked problem even deeper below this is addressing growth in terms of a sustainable mm. biodiversity, biodiverse area to support it. So if we're talking about growth and we're going to have more and we're already facing day zero now in like two month three month chunks how does the political aspirations and the, the people who were working on these deeper um, wicked problems address this unsustainable growth view mm. I I completely buy into that and I think um, there's many economists and demographic population specialists who are saying that 
by mid-century, we're going to peak and then human population will start collapsing. And we're an aging population, particularly in Europe and Japan and parts of Asia, where people, the norm will be 100. Uh, the, the average will be 100 years old. And retirement age and human health is going to push to, like, we'll still be working when we're 80 years old, uh, etc., and I think there's lots of arguments building in favor of where that is going. Uh, the reality is the socio-economic machinery tends to lag um, to make that happen. Um, uh, only when we have kind of certain um, economic or financial shocks. So if I remember correctly, uh, France, uh, possibly Germany, and one or two other EU countries had to lift their retirement age from above 65, um, pushing above that because they need those individuals to contribute to, um, obviously, the tax regime that then funds those things. Getting back to the biodiversity question and growth, yes, uh, if I remember in the 70s already, uh, there was a group of concerned economists that, and it might have been called the Rome Consensus gathered in Italy saying uh, unlimited growth is not possible and we have to relook at those models. And I think the EU is starting to understand that. They're starting to see that uh, non-consumptive growth is going to have to be part of the future scheme of how their countries and member states operate. The problem with that is we face expectations. As India and China and many states in Africa have said, we can't pay for global impacts because America and Europe turned out global uh, carbon emissions, and now you're asking us to dial back on our ability to grow our economies. So that's where the battle is happening, is to say, well, how do you tell India and China to dial back? Uh, I think the, the last check last week when I u looked at the UN figures, we are at 7.6 billion people on the planet, yeah. if I remember correctly. There's um, the political legacy of the Western world versus the South or non-developed world or rapidly developing world. Yeah, I don't think there's any term anymore of an undeveloped world, really, um, other yeah. than those that have chosen to stay a traditional life or um, maintain their own balance. There was recently a post about a lost tribe. Um, they're not lost. They know right where they are, and they've chosen to not take on the Western model of lifestyle and consumption so if we don't address yeah. this consumptive society and, and and you know it can speak personally about what's going on in the u.s under the current administration of trump and the removal of all these environmental laws and protective standards to allow large industrialization fracking gas oil opening up um, protected lands 
and trying to or, or bringing back coal and now we have a resurgence of black lung disease in the uh, east in the Appalachians and that's been gone for you know uh, 50 years a century so as we see our political systems shifting into you know like what Trump is doing or what the EU is doing and constantly trying to adjust the metaphysical to fit this growth model, the planet simply cannot sustain that many people without some sort of repercussion. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think we're going to see a lot more day zeros. And as we discussed uh, last time around, uh, the day zeros that we've all forgotten about because yeah. we are short-term memory um, species and we short-term memory people. Uh, going back into the 70s, um, as I mentioned before, once the Italians um, cleared out um, forests in Ethiopia, and it took about 20 years, and then suddenly the droughts, the persistent famine um, and impacts into Ethiopia and Somalia became commonplace. And until today, it's a standing item on the UN about how much food, how many kilograms, how many this, how many tons of that to send there um, because it's now a standard thing. And we tend to normalize the shifting baseline. Yeah, I mean, there was a time to use a weird comparison, but in South Africa, uh, when crime peaked in the 1990s and into the 2000s, many of us became inured to it. We would go to a social gathering and hear this person had been hijacked, or in America the term is carjacked, or a violent housebreaking, and it all became an established norm that we eventually acknowledged. And once you do that, you normalize that. That's when you kind of get the um, the normalization of crime, for example, in the Brazilian favelas in Rio, where the police and military can't go into certain areas because... <laughs> they'll get sorted out by the gangs and in parts of Colombia and in parts of Mexico and Juarez. And and, that's what's happening uh, here. We just had another mass shooting. And it, we've had, I don't, I've lost count of how many mass shootings of children killing children. But this is a, a civil society breakdown and we've normalized yeah. it. It's a different kind of threat. And it's not being addressed as a mass social problem. No, absolutely. And I have a caution for America uh, growing up in apartheid and growing up essentially in a country that was at civil war with itself um, is to say, be careful. The more you normalize, the harder it gets later to backtrack because your average citizen um, becomes detached from what's important. In other words, our rights. What is important to every person? Their indivisible and personal rights. And South Africa has come from a place where one 
particularly portion of the population, the whites had all the rights and others didn't. And we're still grappling with how to make that work. And in America, you've got all the rights in place, except, uh, okay, personal opinion kicking in now, is that the amendments become something to be abused. And that's what I would pose back to the Americans, say, yes, you can defend civil rights politically and you can defend your constitution. But when there's a level of abuse of those things, questions must be asked as how you actually deal with the repercussions, the impacts. And that's that's the thing uh, with the wicked problem, getting back to that. A wicked problem is also often about local issues having regional or global impacts. And that's the thing that America's facing with gun issues as South Africa's facing with illegal wildlife trade. We are having local rhino poaching issues in the Kruger, but it is affecting our national population of rhinos and our biodiversity at national level. The impact is so much bigger than just Kruger. It's about the species but those local things are cumulative and they have a national impact. Absolutely. And we need to act upon those things. Those Absol- are not things that must be seen in isolation. It has to be addressed nationally with all the force and verve that we expect of our public representatives. I'm old enough that I lived through one of the most tumultuous decades in the United States history and the world, uh, the 60s, civil rights. And we're still today, as you just Mm. mentioned, figuring out what that means. Mm. And we should actually take joy (laughs) that it actually can mean a lot and not be complacent. Right. As we've noticed, South Africa's paid the price of nearly nine years of general complacency. I think, uh, I mean, I'm not pointing fingers at anybody, not America, not France and parts of Europe that have had similar challenges with civil rights and uh, these lone wolf attacks on on tragic, I mean, absolutely awful, um, on children and... Uh, av- and, and well, not, not saying average citizens, but just people getting on with their day-to-day lives. And there's one thing to defend rights as an absolute, but there's another thing in terms of coming up with proactive plans to say, okay, sure, that's an entrenched right in our constitution, but there are certain limitations. And I think even in South Africa, we're moving to those conversations uh, to say, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's fine, um, but there are implications. Those rights come with responsibilities. I think and that's the, the operative word and key point right here is the responsibilities. We seem to um, slough off our respons- individual responsibility for seeing to these rights and normalizing the abnormal that it ends up, you know, coming back to bite us 20, yeah. 30, no. 50 years later. I mean, you can compare it to uh, generations mm. that have grown up only in civil war. These children of those periods and the children today growing up in such a violent period of history, 
civil conflict has become rather com- commonplace all around the globe. That how do they deal with conflict resolution when it becomes time for them to take their place as leaders? And so this is what we're talking about today, folks. These deep underlying wicked problems that are finally coming back to um, floated to the top. I think it's yeah. I think it's great that they come through, and they emerge out of that boiling pot. Those those nasty ingredients that come to the top of a witch's brew, I suppose, if or warlock's brew, if you want to use that kind of term um, or statement. And I I really believe, um, as we've learned in South Africa, one of the great lessons that we did get positive lessons that everybody must embrace is that it took two diametrically opposite individuals politically, Sula Ramaphosa and Rolf Mayer, to sit down at a table whilst their colleagues were shouting at them to say, no, this is not possible. Uh, We cannot collaborate. We cannot move to a common future. Yet they did. And I admit there were many others involved from Mandela to um, F.W. de Klerk. There were many others involved. I'm not disputing history. But it's in the power of groups and the power of teamwork. And we are better at solving things collectively. Well, one can hope. I mean, once again, it reminds me of the 60s between Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And Martin Mm. Luther King was all about nonviolent protest. And then Mm. the next generation came in. So Martin Luther King and Kennedy worked together to create the first civil rights uh, laws. And you can Mm. tell that was a very different thing for Kennedy coming from a a dynasty, so to speak. Mm. And then the next generation moved in along, you know, after Martin Luther King that took a more violent bent and you know Mm. that protest protest needed to be heard in a more violent way and that seems to be Mm. the road we've followed in where we're at today so with all these Mm. mass shootings and availability of high-powered weapons the individual is definitely screaming out that something's wrong so what we're looking for and i think what you're saying in, in terms of what south africa has gone through and why we should pay attention to history is during these times of crisis, um, crises, multiple crises, we turn to look to leadership and those charismatic um, uh, integrity people to float to Mm. the top and rally around. With Ramaphosa, he's risen to the top, so to speak. Here in the U.S., we haven't gotten somebody that we can rally around at this point so it it leads to a a large fracturing i'm hoping by 2020 we've come to our senses and someone is will have floated to the top but it's a very wicked problem that many countries around the globe are facing right now in this period of normalizing the abnormal while we try to find solutions to these multifaceted um, underpinning wicked problems. Uh, absolutely. And in saying that, in kind of closing, 
for me, it's making sure that we keep them accountable and not, as you, you mentioned somebody, not just a militant march or whatever. There's so much talent in America and in South Africa and elsewhere. There's so much great thinking amongst individuals and groups, NGOs, nonprofits, and everything um, that doesn't have to be purely political in how it does its things and how it projects itself. But I think, uh, as we've noticed, that pure militism doesn't really work. It may uh, make the headlines and may do certain things and attain certain things, but in the end of it, we need clear thinking people that are willing to stand up for others, even for themselves, if they're selfish, but with a different view. And I think one of the things in South Africa we're learning is that we are maturing as a democracy. It's no longer about two parties. It's not just the democratic alliance versus the ANC. We're seeing diversity. And one of those lessons would be to say to America, You've got to be a bit careful just having Republicans versus the Democrats. Um, uh, it, it has its limitations. It does not invite creative thinking. And I think there's a great opening, a great space for more, for more diversity. And, and the UK has experienced it with some of the far right guys challenging the two dominant parties. I, I think it's put them in a... <laughs> an interesting position as well so diversity is also key um, politically as well absolutely so if folks when we when we talk about diversity it's not just biodiversity it's people diversity and voices that will be heard for this diverse globalized population i mean th the earth is one big melting pot and borders and boundaries are man-made so when we talk of evolution our political process also must evolve and i think ashwell brings up a really great point and you know we can look at it as rainbow or coalition but there's a lot of voices that need to be heard and right now the violent ones are floating to the top so this balance and this shift is is going to be an interesting process of which and this is what we talked about last time as well every individual matters at this point and it's not just about the human individuals every non-human individual matters because without them in the biodiversity side of this equation we don't have a planet to live on so in our political system we have to start being a little less human centric anthropocentric age of the human era or anthropocene and start realizing that this mm -hmm. this um convoluted complex web that is this little blue green ball in space we have to find a way to cross over and work together across the oceans mm. yeah yeah absolutely um and as we're chatting i've just uh, you're gonna chuckle a bit but as we are chatting the new president the Republic of South Africa is um, speaking, uh, doing what we call the State of the Nation Address, is actually publicly stated um, that 
they are going to move very strongly against corruption across the state and the independence institutions like in South Africa, what we call our Auditor General, will have full authority to deal with poor performing uh, state bodies. And we talk, uh, so the American version would be the Department of Defense and the CIA and various federal institutions. The commitment to dealing with uh, issues of what the citizenry are concerned about in South Africa is on track. And I think, uh, wow, I'm, I'm really surprised he's even said this. Well, this, uh, because is, this is a stunning announcement, and it just goes to show that folks' times, they are a-changing, and all of us have a voice, and we need to be heard. There's a lot of reasoning to do it non-violently, and to address these underlying, simmering, wicked problems. It's time we're facing day zero on a lot of these issues and if we push them off to another future date it's just going to create more troubles and it's exciting times in South Africa there's a lot of exciting times across the continent of Africa with um, all these positive changes and here's hoping what we Americans can do is find our voice and stand up and find a different way to be Absolutely. And as a non-American, many of us, regardless of the geopolitical uh, kind of views that have been talking about uh, China's rising and uh, North Korea and Trump and his uh, particular form of behavior, we still look to America as a home for democratic values and principles. So we look with excited eyes and hopeful hearts. I know it sounds very um, well, uh, as, <laughs> probably as I like naive. To put it, um, I like to put it, there is life beyond Trump. And we have to start yes. thinking about that um, through all levels of society. And um, unfortunately, yeah. today we're, we're out of time. This has been a fascinating uh, conversation on really what's going on right now and what we can do and hopefully we've given some advice hints ideas perspective that uh time goes on and um but at the same time we do get to that tipping point and we are at one so um ashwell thank you so much this has been a fascinating conversation and we'll continue to have them so um i guess you need to get back to the news because things are happening over there and we need to yeah, sign off absolutely. so thanks again it's an absolute pleasure and thank you for your time and thank you listeners and people that take the time to kind of listen to what we say from our little portion of um deep south africa in the bottom of the continent um but yeah we're we're in this with you that's one thing for sure we do listen to what's happening across the big water and it's not that big anymore but yeah and we can do re reciprocate we need to be listening to what's happening elsewhere out there in our wild world 
Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now.